Hello and welcome back to the Weekside Podcast. I am Jenny Brentis here with Connor Orr. And the thing I am most excited about for this week's episode is we have a lot of reader feedback to get to. A lot of you have been writing in to weeksidepod at gmail.com, messaging us on Twitter. We really appreciate that. That has inspired a few of our questions today. We also, Connor, have gotten some really interesting recommendations. Macro Runner on Twitter sent in a pumpkin chili recipe that looks Ooh. fantastic. I am definitely going to try that in the coming weeks. Um, Nat wrote in with a puzzle recommendation, Liberty Puzzles, which is with laser cut wood pieces. Um, and I looked it up and these puzzles look amazing, but also really hard. But here's the other thing, Connor, Nat's favorite of the Liberty Puzzles is the giant octopus, which is largely made up of smaller octopuses. And it's not a rectangular shape. It's octopus shaped. So I would like Nat to know that he's given us an idea when Mitch Goldich wins the Pulitzer Prize (laughs) for Public Service Journalism for creating the octopus stat in the NFL, we can get him the octopus liberty puzzle. So Nat, thank you for that suggestion. But in general, it seems like an awesome puzzle thing to try. Um, And lastly, we heard from Brandon in Albuquerque, who said that I have a calming voice similar to his grandmother and coworker, Mike, which is a lovely compliment and also the first time I have received this specific compliment in my life. I have never heard anyone say anything positive about my voice. I agree with him. Welcome. That was was, I think that was right on, you know. (laughs) That was that was that was very well played. Um, but yeah, this is great. This is like when um, you know when you're in college and you know you're not really sure because like all the other students are the ones that are handling the incoming mail and putting it in your boxes, so you don't really hear from anyone for a long time. And then all of a sudden, one Saturday, you walk downstairs and then you like your entire PO box is stuffed with things. You know, maybe yeah. letters from friends or parents or little care packages or stuff like that. So this is like that. It's very uh, it's very exciting. Yeah, we got a lot of great mail, and two of our five co- topics today are from reader questions or listener questions, rather. So we're really excited to talk about this week in the NFL along with you guys. So just love hearing from everybody, and love that we have an audience out there. It really means a lot. So. Absolutely, and pumpkin chili, keep pumpkin it coming, chili. guys. Let's I know I go. have a can of pumpkin in my cabinet that I wasn't sure what to use it with, but I think I'm going to use it for the pumpkin chili. So nice, lots to lots to take in here so all right we'll dive into the topics connor um the first topic is the most thrilling moment of this sunday sunday afternoon brought us the gift of the hail murray the improbable throw from kyler murray to deandre hopkins whose hands emerged from three defenders almost miraculously to catch the game-winning score in the final seconds connor which was more impressive the throw or the catch it was, you know, I saw a few people bringing up the throw this morning. You know, when you see it live and you digest it for the first time, you're not even thinking about the throw. Like, you know, you're just amazed that it had gotten there. You're so un- unused to seeing of people coming down with the actual catch in the end zone. And so I didn't even think about it until I went back and I watched it this morning again. And I said, oh, my gosh. I mean, that was on one leg. He was fading out of bounds. And... You know, if you look at the heights of the defense, DeAndre Hopkins is about an inch taller than the tallest defender um, in the Bills secondary that was in that area. And just the pinpoint accuracy with which that had to be put on the run um, under duress. Uh, fading towards the sideline. I mean, I, I'm almost inclined to go for the throw. 
Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I mean, DeAndre Hopkins, what a catch. And I don't know if anybody else caught this, but there was the Cardinals receiver who ran over right afterwards and started like hitting DeAndre Hopkins in the stomach. Did you see this? Like, when, no, he's I holding... missed that part. So when he landed, he's like he like landed by securing the football. And then right. the other receiver comes over and starts just like playfully batting him in the stomach. And if I was Hopkins, I'd be like, get away from me until they <laughs> confirm this is a catch. And then like, I don't want the ball going out anywhere. But um, I don't know. I, I would have to say throw. I just, I think that was pretty incredible. What about you? Yeah, Connor, as usual, we're on the same page here. So the idea for this topic came this morning when I was recording the Monday morning show with Gary Gramling and he brought up the play and was talking about the catch the whole time. And I said, well, what about the throw? You know, and then I I wondered where people fell on this, but I should have known that you and I were aligned. Um, And I, I say the throw because of all of the reasons that you described. Also the fact that Kyler Murray like came all the way over from the right hash mark all the way to the left sideline, which is where he launched the ball. Um, And I just don't know how you can do that. I don't know how you can throw the ball and have it land at exactly the point where DeAndre Hopkins' hands are. That is just one of those feats that I have a hard time of wrapping my head around. Whereas the catch, while incredibly impressive and deserves all the praise that it that it is getting, it's a little bit easier to like match that with some of the other things. You know, guys make crazy catches and, you know, he has strong hands and he he does does versions of this, probably not to the difficulty of what he did on Sunday, but I just feel like the the launching of the throw and getting it to the exact right spot where his hands would be, to me, is something that I have a hard time fathoming how you do that. Yeah, it was almost like DeAndre Hopkins is, it's like basketball, right? He's being double covered in the paint, and he is just a hair bigger and stronger than the other kids there, mm-hmm. and the point guard can just get it to him. And, it, it, you know, you don't think about that entry pass as much, but it's just incredible the the touch that needs to go on that. And <clears throat> Murray, just to me, is amazing in the fact that He's so robotic. I mean, he's just like everything about him and in the best possible way. I mean, there's just everything about him almost in in the Russell Wilson type way where every theatrical throw has been rehearsed a thousand times. He understands the capabilities of his body and the limitations of it and what he needs to do differently. And he's just so impressive. And like every week we're waiting for that team to shut him down and show us that, you know, there's sort of a limit to what they can do here, but he just keeps plugging on and, and just breaking the mold. Yeah, this was a really big win for them. I mean, for a lot of different reasons, but I was looking for instance, for one of the other topics today at our MMQB midseason power rankings, and we had collectively Arizona out of the top ten. Um, so I think there is a there was a perception of that that is where Arizona was. But this kind of win, they're definitely a top ten team. They could win the NFC West, in which is potentially the the best division in the NFL. Um, and the ability to like make that kind of play, which it seemed impossible at that juncture in the game to pull out a win. It seemed impossible even when he launched the ball that it would be a score. It wasn't until you saw Hopkins' hands, you know, sticking up there and the ball, you know, kind of like attracting to them like a magnet and just kind of sticking that you were like, wow, this really can happen. And then you saw the touchdown signal by the official. But 
you know, as I was watching the ball in the air, I was like, oh, okay, so they'll have one more shot at the end zone, not thinking that that would, like, work, right? Yeah, it was just ridiculous. And I think the opponent, too, you have to take into consideration because, you know, this isn't Detroit where or like a team that's like notoriously sleepwalking through the season, you know, and it's a team that can get banged on something like this. This is one of the best defenses in the league, Mm -hmm. Um, a head coach who is one of the best defensive coaches in the league. And obviously, Leslie Frazier, who could be in line for a head coaching job after the season like this was a really, really good defensive football team. And it was interesting because on Sunday night football in America, Tony Dungy had said that the Bills had made a gigantic mistake by not jamming DeAndre Hopkins at the line on that play. And you had two two defensive backs who were 10 yards off of the receiver. But I thought that was maybe a little bit of Monday morning quarterbacking and not to, you know, I mean, Tony Dungy knows more about defense than I'll ever know, but I thought they played it well. Like you, you had three guys on the team's best wide receiver, right? I mean, what else could you have asked for as a defensive head coach? I mean, everybody was in the right place. I think, you know, it was a pretty solid plan, but you know, at, at some point, you know, there's just this element of whatever it is, cosmic interference that happens on a play like this. Yeah, there wasn't a lot more that you could have asked from the Bills defenders. They were swarmed around him, but Hopkins, as you mentioned, was, you know, an inch taller and his hand stuck up from the group and it was a miraculous play. You feel for uh, Deshaun Watson watching that one on uh, Sunday. Oh, you know? man. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Texans score seven points and lose to the Browns. So another, another, uh, uh, another, uh, Glowing uh, review of the Bob trade on that one, for sure. That decision will never make sense, Connor. (laughs) Never make sense. All right, topic two. The Patriots showed signs of life for the 23-17 win against the Ravens amid a monsoon at four and five. Uh, Is New England back in the possible playoff mix? Um, I love the usage of the word monsoon there. When we were in college... There was like a T-Mobile commercial. I don't know if you remember this. And um, it was like the guy dressed up as like Ben Franklin. And he sang Don't Call It a Comeback by LL Cool J. And uh, there's like making the tears rain down like a monsoon. But like he said wow. it in like a really old English voice. And we used to always yell that at each other in our dorm for some reason. Monsoon. I don't know why. But the, Somehow the, I missed this important cultural reference. <laughs> I don't know if anybody is going to catch this one. Uh, that was that was oddly obscure, but this was the perfect Patriots game, right? Because they can, you know, what they lack defensively and offensively, the rain is sort of a neutralizer uh, there. And, mm-hmm. you know, in, in those ugly games, I think it just favors coaching, you know, and John Harbaugh is a great coach. He's one of the best coaches in the NFL, but he's not, the best coach in NFL history. So I think, you know, the scale kind of slides into Belichick's favor a little bit when the conditions are, are like they were. Yeah. And I have been slow admittedly to count the Patriots out. I think because I just felt like they would bounce back after Cam Newton returned from being on the COVID-19 list. I felt like they weren't losing games by that much, you know, Uh, a lot of the performances were narrow margins. I mean, the Bills loss, right? You have the the crushing fumble at the end of the game. Um, you know, and the Seahawks game, they, they could have won that one. You know, they were in position to potentially win and things didn't break right, but felt like they weren't that far off from being a winning team. Um, but then, 
you know, squeaking out the win over the Jets, that was when I was like, okay, you know, this isn't happening this year. <laughs> um, and also some of Belichick's comments that are, were essentially conceding this season. But in this game, you know, you saw uh, you saw Cam and you saw this smart game plan by Josh McDaniels um, to, as you said, Connor, you know, the conditions really favored what the Patriots want to do, but also they called a game that took advantage of that. Um, I thought that was clear in the, bro- uh, the NBC broadcast team's pregame conversation with McDaniels that he had factored that into the game plan and it really showed. Um, And, you know, you saw a team slow down Lamar Jackson after a year ago uh, around the same time of the season. Uh, He was the one that, you know, ended their hot 8-0 start. Um, So, I don't know. I'm not ready to count them out. Like, their remaining schedule, you know, they've got some tough games. They've got the Cardinals They've got the Dolphins and the Bills again, the Rams, but they've also got the Texans, the Chargers, the Jets. You never know. Could uh, the AFC playoff picture is very crowded, and I think those last few wild card spots will be hotly contested. But hey, maybe uh, maybe they get Gilmore back. Maybe Cam kind of st- continues to bounce back from that little early season lull. Well, Who knows? so let me put it to you this way: if if you if Bill Belichick makes the playoffs at like say nine and seven and gets that mm-hmm. seventh spot in the AFC, and I think I I think we're in lockstep here. Is that more impressive to you than the Buccaneers going whatever twelve and four, eleven and five, and rolling into the playoffs? I think it is. Like if you look at the landscape, the you know even going out to like Nikhil Harry, like these guys aren't developing the way that they are scheduled to develop. And you could say whatever you want about Belichick, the drafter. Um, he got a little testy with that when he was asked about it earlier in the week, but yeah. um, you know, I think he's coaching them in the right direction, but I don't know. What, what do you think would be more impressive to you? I think that if they snuck into the playoffs at nine and seven in the first year, post Tom Brady with a depleted roster, lots of guys opting out, um, key positions that you don't have the kind of top tier talent you need. I I think that might be more impressive, Connor. You know, it's tough because it is impressive for Tom Brady to go to a new team, but he also went to a team that was fully stacked, like a roster that was ready to compete were it not for, you know, a turnover prone quarterback that they had last season. So, uh, an excellent defense and, you know, a lot of elements that made that a favorable situation for him to go to. So, um, but you know, if, it, if Belichick's comments the last few weeks have been interesting because you just generally don't hear him talk like that. You know, his he got testy, as you mentioned, with the kind of the questions about his drafting record, and he kind of pointed to his long success over the last 20 years. Um, and he also had the comments about, you know, this was our year to kind of clear the cap. We'd sold out and it worked for us. We won Super Bowls. Like, you don't often hear him defensive about his record, right? Um, so it was interesting that in a year when he was struggling, he kind of did that. Like, he went that direction. Um, so, you know, to me, that was a clear sign that this season was just kind of different in his mind. But that doesn't mean they still can't make something of it. Can I make one weird point from the broadcast um, last night that I just thought was worth? I, I it, for some reason it just like hit me in a weird way. But when Jacoby Myers throws the touchdown pass, the wide, you know, and obviously he's played quarterback before in his life, you know, uh-huh. and Chris Collinsworth is like, 
this is Belichick all over it. Like, he knows that this guy used to play quarterback. Everybody knows that he used to play quarterback. Like, Bill Belichick isn't the only one who knows that this guy knows how to throw a football. Like, you know, like, right. we give him... It's it, it's so weird because we give him far too much credit on surface-level things and not nearly enough credit on, like, the general big-picture things. You know what I mean? And it's just like, I wish... <clears throat> And I don't know what it is. I mean, I've heard he's notoriously difficult to deal with um, with broadcast crews during the week because he doesn't want to reveal anything for the game plan and and all that stuff. But I wish that there was a, a, a better representative, uh, a Belichick historian, to kind of contextualize what we're seeing in the moment, you know, and and what he's doing in in the scope of his career and and kind of all that stuff, as opposed to like classic Belichick move, knowing this guy knows how to throw a football. Like every team is running wide receiver passes this year or putting another quarterback in the lineup to do that and that's not you know I, I feel like it's almost unfair to you know to just couch that as Belichickian you know when uh, th- that's a scouting report that's on every blesto list that every scout in America gets before the the draft yeah I mean first of all we already went through that with Edelman with the Patriots right but yeah. I mean you and I covered the Jets Bad Smith, you know, had been yeah. a quarterback in college. I mean, so I, I, I'm with you on that. That seems like a very basic thing that, like, is not does not representative of the next level thinking that he has on certain things. I will say, I do think Tony Romo is sort of at that place where he yes. can actually give insight into what Belichick's thinking, and I don't know if that's because Belichick respects him and maybe lets him in a little bit more, um, or it's because he's played the game recently and in the era when Belichick, you know, has, has had the dynasty that he maybe understands it from studying it or whatever the case may be. I do think, I do find that I enjoy Romo the most talking about Belichick and in, in the context of calling a game. And no offense to Scott Hansen, but the only way to get more Romo is to get Romo on red zone, you know, because we, we can only have so much Romo every week. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's the gap between him and the others. I mean, Collinsworth it's, has really dropped on my list after some of his comments, especially mm-hmm. the ones we detailed last week regarding Antonio Brown. But the gap between Romo and everyone <clears throat> else, in my mind, is is significant. Yeah, I did not catch Aqib Tlaib. I was reading uh, some reviews of his first um, go-around. I've been impressed. I thought Jonathan Vilma is, has stepped up and done um, you know, a pretty interesting yeah. job in the booth. Um, yeah. I've always liked Charles Davis. You know, I think he's good, but you're right. I mean, in terms of like explaining what people are thinking, I thought that Romo, the only precursor to Romo in that, genre I think was Mike Mayock who used to do Notre Dame play-by-play and do the same things he would Mm -hmm. predict the plays he would explain the blocking and um, they told him to stop doing it because it was annoying the fans but you know here we have Tony Romo who's like taking it to another level and you know you're right watching a game with him is not only better for the hardcore football fan but I would also argue the lay fan you know if I'm watching something with people who aren't as interested in football he has a way of getting them into the broadcast as well yeah a hundred percent he knows how to make people excited because he gets so excited so you kind of go along with that excitement so absolutely all right topic number three we released the mmqb mid-season power rankings last week and three of the teams in our top seven lost this week so that was a important poll connor because it was all of us together like it was a composite one whereas the previous ones we kind of rotated 
So anyways, the three teams in the top seven that lost were Baltimore, Buffalo, and Seattle. Which team's place as a true contender do you think is most in jeopardy after this past weekend's results, Connor? Jenny, polling in general is just a... <laughs> well, that's know, true. <laughs> it's, you know, whether it's the Power Poll, whether it's the uh, Wall Street Journal, NBC, you know, poll, it's, it, we're all struggling in this well, area. Well, yes, yeah, so at least so, we're know. not the most inaccurate poll in America, so... <laughs> yeah, um, but I would say that, you know, it's hard because I have been banging Buffalo, you know, I picked them to go seven and nine before this year. I did not estimate that they would come out as well as they did. I don't think that they're a team that falls back because all of their losses have been these last minute deals. They've been in every game, you know, but I would say that, you know, if I'm more most legitimately worried about a team, it's probably Baltimore. And the reason that I say that is because they were making a flurry of activity this preseason, uh, you know, or off season, which usually is indicative of, you know, even coaches or coordinators knowing that there's some limitations on the roster. You know, they really were aggressive in going out and trading for people um, and trying to shore up some deficiencies. And, you know, we know that they were active in conversations, you know, maybe the Antonio Brown conversation at some point or another. Um, you know, they wanted to add another playmaker and they weren't able to do that. They have Des Bryant, uh, you know, uh, on the practice squad. So it's one of those situations where I think that they almost kind of told on themselves a little bit as a team that was maybe a little concerned about their depth or, you know, kind of their versatility, whatever it is, because at least to this point, I don't know if we've seen as much of an evolution from last year to this year as I've expected with them. Connor, again, on the same page. I mean, wow. I, I feel the same way. Uh, I, we were This topic also stemmed from the Monday Morning Pod with Gary, and he said he wasn't worried about Baltimore. Um, but I am. Uh, it's Au not... contraire, Gare. <laughs> Au contraire, Gare. Wow. Always, always there with the rhymes, Connor. I love it. <laughs> Um, but I'm right there with you. I expected the offense to continue to morph and grow this year. And I think there have been just constant signs of frustration, you know, from Mark Ingram saying early in the season that they hadn't really found their identity. Uh, there was an exchange, um, Lamar Jackson and Marquise Brown, after being stopped in the second half, uh, you know, on a third down, I believe it was, they come off the field and they were watching the replay on the Jumbotron from what it appeared on the TV broadcast, at least. And they both were just frustrated. You know, Marquise Brown kind of ripped off his uh, chin strap and Lamar kind of, uh, man, you know, exclaimed in frustration at what he'd seen on the big screen. I can only imagine was some kind of misplay. Um, so I, I think they haven't reclaimed the magic that they had last season. And I think it's because perhaps that they haven't adjusted accordingly and again losing Yonda from last season and now Ronnie Stanley on the line makes a big difference trading Hayden Hurst makes a big difference the tight end um, roster has been depleted for the Ravens and so they don't have the ability to use those two or three tight end sets that were a big part of the offense last season um, and some of the, the play calling, you know, we talked about uh, also on the Monday pod, the, the fourth down call when, with, uh, when they went to wild, wildcat formation with Mark Ingram. And that just seemed like a strange 
called to use in that situation. Yeah. Obviously, it was a big loss and there was an issue with the exchange. But regardless of that, even in any circumstance, just don't really understand going to the Wildcat when Lamar Jackson is your quarterback. So, um, I you know, the offense has some some soul searching to do. And, and I think the onus of that goes on the coaching staff. Whatever they saw from the Titans in the wild card loss was a blueprint for how teams would be playing them this season. And you knew you couldn't do what you did in 2019 and 2020. You knew you would need to adapt and grow and morph. And um, unfortunately, they haven't done that to a degree where they can continue to be dominant. That's a great point. Um, when I, I had to write about Lamar for our fantasy football preview issue, and <clears throat> a lot of people, we, we were we were very ready, I think, for people to call him a one-year wonder or bust because the lay fan really views players through the lens of how many points he's scoring for my fantasy football team, right? right. And he's not scoring as many points. And, you know, the, the, the thing is, that it was never replicable. Last season was never, ever going to be replicable for Lamar Jackson again. And, you know, the onus is not on him. Like you said, it, the, you, you have to, and it was a great job by Greg Roman to bring in Paul Johnson and to incorporate some of those triple option feels into the offense and make them so hard to prepare for. But then you got to do it again, you know? You got to every year you need to be harder or different to defend. And that's what Bill Belichick has kind of taught everybody else in the league every year. It's like, okay, this year we're going to be an up tempo offense. This year we're going to be, you know, a version of like a run and shoot. You know, this year we're going to be fun and gun, whatever it is. And, you know, not that Baltimore is stagnant, you know, and I don't want to say that at all. You have the best, most exciting athlete in, in the, in the sport as your quarterback, but um, you know, I, I just don't see the step forward. And, you know, I think a lot of people are going to end up putting this on Lamar when it shouldn't be put on Lamar. Yeah. And there's still a lot of season ahead. Um, they're firmly in the AFC wildcard picture. I mean, there's definitely opportunities to get back on track, but you know, I think there's definitely reason for concern at this point, Connor. Just as we're saying this, I got an email from, uh, uh, a odds maker, uh, sportsbetting.com, uh, Lamar Jackson entered the season as MVP co-favorite with Patrick Mahomes, um, is now down to 100 to one odds. Um, he started the season at 30 to one odds for, uh, the MVP. He's now about the same as Derek Henry and Ryan Tannehill. Okay. So, interesting. Interesting. Little, little gambling slice. There. Yeah. Always, always got the gambling tidbits for the listeners <laughs> <laughs> but don't follow anything we say ever just as please don't cover yeah. because we don't know what we're talking about so <laughs> um all right topic number four connor we are going to move on to some reader mail for our last two topics uh pete last wrote in in august and thanks for writing again pete asking us at what point will we see the 2020 bucks as for real we told him to check back with us mid-season and here we are and pete has so, are they a realistic challenger in the NFC? And, uh, you know, sort of a, a second part to this. Pete also asked us to reconcile our stance on the Bucks as a heel team after the addition of Antonio Brown with how we viewed the Chiefs in 2019, given their additions of Tyreek Hill, Frank Clark, and Terrell Suggs, all of whom have had a record of violence against women. Great, uh, great question, top to bottom. And thank you for uh, holding us accountable and checking yes. back in midseason. I love it. Yes. We appreciate it, Pete. I mean, as for the first part of the question, 
I definitely missed the boat on this. I didn't pick the Bucks to go to the playoffs, um, despite the fact that they had a re- roster that was primed for a big step forward for all of the reasons we discussed earlier in the show. Um, I don't know. I guess I thought a dream teams never live up to expectations and B it would be hard to make an adjustment in the middle of a pandemic when there wasn't a routine off season program. Now, you know, Brady got in work with his teammate on his own teammates on his own. Um, and the transition has had some bumps, but for the most part, except in their games against new Orleans, it has gone better than expected. Um, so yes, I, they are definitely a very real contender in the NFC and I missed the boat on this one. I would say that I am comfortable with how I couched it this year in saying that I think the team is going to be good and I think they're going to be good because Todd Bowles is a great defensive coordinator and that's going to mean more to them than like Tom Brady is, is essentially a quarterback is the anti Jameis, right? He's not turning the ball over and he's putting the ball in the right place largely um, to a spate of excellent skill position players. I think the biggest lift there has been on that defense, um, the way that they've stacked the personnel and drafted. And I think that most of their success is going to hinge on, you know, his continued excellent coaching. And I think the good players on there. So I think I'm comfortable with my stance there. I don't know if I picked them to make the playoffs or not. I know I had them at 10 wins, um, but I also had the Falcons at 10 wins um, because bird, bird team's going to bird team, you know, I mean, what else are we going to do there? That's, that's a no brainer. But um, second part to the question is interesting. Um, and I will lead with a little of the story from the Super Bowl this past year. Um, I, you know, so if you go to the Super Bowl and you interview um, uh, the interview situation at the Super Bowl on the days before the game, you know, you're in these big hotel ballrooms and all the players are sitting at small tables and you kind of pack around them. You know, some some people don't have a lot of players uh, uh, media there. Some people have tons of media there, um, and there's media from all over the the globe there. And so there's a, a group of Danish TV reporters that flew to the Super Bowl specifically to ask Chiefs players and other media members how uncomfortable they were with Tyree Kill um, being on the roster and um, you know covering Tyree Kill and just folding this into a normal part of um, folding this into a normal part of the pre-week coverage without mentioning, um, you know, his situation um, and Frank Clark and uh, Terrell Suggs are certainly an extension of that. And I thought it was interesting because they were telling me that, you know, in other parts of the world, this is something that we talk about on the broadcast openly. You know, this mm-hmm. is part of the discussion. And it's not like, you know, I men- you mentioned last week with Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth, something that they very eagerly sweep under the rug to get going. Like, no, this is a discussion point. You know, this is, we want to know how people are feeling about this. And it was very uncomfortable watching them interview a bunch of Chiefs players about this and asking them how they felt about it. But at the same time, I thought it was an interesting exercise in just sort of like how we are conditioned to view these situations sometimes, you know, how other people view them like perspective wise. And I I don't know, I thought it was a great question in terms of like, you know, I, I know that you and Greg, when you did the chiefs Super Bowl story, put a lot of thought into, you know, um, making sure that that was understood as part of Kansas City's calculus there is to add these guys, even though it is, you know, sort of uh, certainly an asterisk on at least the character aspect of the of that roster composition. 
Yeah. And I am really glad you asked this question, Pete, because I think it is important. And I think as Connor described, the best way to talk about it is to talk about it, to make that a part of the story. And that was something that Greg Bishop and I talked a lot about when we were doing the Super Bowl game story. You know, we prepared for a couple of weeks and it's a story that talks about the winner's journey to that point. You know, it's a commemorative issue for the Chiefs when they won. And we said, how are we going to talk about Hill and Clark? Um, Because Hill was the subject of a child abuse investigation involving his young son in the spring before the 2019 season. Um, District attorney declined to press charges against Hill or the boy's mother, but said, we believe a crime has occurred. Um, And Hill, of course, denied any wrongdoing. but that was a big part of the lead up to the 2019 season. And it was a part of how that team was constructed, just as the fact that they traded for Frank Clark while the Hill investigation was ongoing and Mm -hmm. Clark was dismissed from the Michigan football team after being arrested on domestic violence charges uh, against his girlfriend, uh, which were reduced to fourth degree persistent disorderly conduct. So we put all of that in the game story and we didn't, just one thing that I was really adamant about is that we know that the Andy Reid storyline has been, you know, he's shown grace to his sons, um, uh, you know, going through substance abuse and um, some of the challenges that they had in their lives. um, And so he's big on second chances. But I think there's a difference, you know, addiction is different than a violent act. Addiction is a disease. Here we are talking about violent acts. Um, and so we could um, we could acknowledge Reed's empathy for human beings. And he said when I interviewed him, you know, it might have something to do with understanding people. If they really put their mind to it to change, maybe they can do that. Maybe they can put it out there and give it another picture, something better. That's what Reed said about it. We also asked Clark Hunt about it. We asked everybody about how this factored in, why they thought it was worth what he had done to earn a second chance. We asked Hill that at media night. Um, But ultimately, not saying that this is the same thing as the compassion that he showed his sons when when faced with an addiction issue, Um, that this is something different. It's a violent act. And ultimately, they made a choice that they thought would benefit the football team, right? So you can't downplay that. That's the truth of the matter. That's how I felt about the Chiefs decision. That's how I feel about the Antonio Brown decision. Um, And so you can write a story about the team, about the success. You can praise Reed for his coaching, uh, his offensive mind, his leadership of the team, while also acknowledging that they made this decision um, involving, you know, continuing a relationship with someone who had committed violence against women, just spell it out. And this was part of their calculation. Like that's the truth of the matter. Um, And it, it makes you uncomfortable. It may make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. Um, But I, you know, in this job, the, the, the way to respond to that is just to keep talking about it and make sure you state the facts and make sure you don't just sweep it under the rug. So that's how I think we handle that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, I agree. I mean, and and from a purely human standpoint, I have to imagine that this is something that privately, you know, um, every head coach has to reconcile with at the end of the day. You know, you can have your, you know, you're sitting on the front porch wearing your Lombardi and you're 85 years old and, you know, are wearing your Super Bowl ring and you're looking at it and, you know, every 
human being has to make an individual determination there. And maybe the determination is different in the moment when you're desperate to attain that piece of jewelry. And it's different 20 years later when, you know, you take a step back and, you know, you think about it. And, you know, I think that that's really one of the more interesting parts about this decision, especially someone like Bruce Arians, you know, um, who has been an advocate, um, you know, and who has been like more, of an outward voice for, you know, what, whatever, you know, diversity in the workplace, um, including female um, coaches on his staff and advocating for their um, promotion up the pipeline, all that kind of stuff. You know, you have to wonder, you know, if this ends up being a successful season 15, 20 years down the road, like, you know, how does that sit with you? You know, and, and that's mm-hmm. what I always kind of think about because you make decisions in the moment, but, it, you know, there are some that follow you for the rest of your life. You know, it's not just, you know, it, it's not just a one and done kind of deal. Yeah. And I just to correct uh, wording that I used a couple seconds ago, I said it may make you uncomfortable, but you have to keep on talking about it. I should have said it may make you uncomfortable. And so you have to keep on talking about it. You should not just avoid a topic because you're unsure about how to handle it. You Mm -hmm. can handle it by asking the questions and addressing it head on in the story. Um, And you should especially do that when it's a topic like this. So well put. Absolutely. All right, topic number five. And Connor tells me that Trayton is a loyal Weekside podcast listener and follows the Broncos. So I'm excited that we included a question from Trayton who has asked us, I'm curious to hear your takes on Drew Locke. Do you guys think he's the guy in Denver? So Trayton, you got to look out for, I think, is a future, um, I think he's a future NFL coach right there. He, uh, he he's uh, sent me some uh, some thoughts on the Broncos and uh, he knows his stuff. So um, thanks for writing in, Trayton. I would say um, that my answer is still the same as it was um, at the beginning of the year, and that I think he can be. But I was completely uninspired by the coordinator change, and I think that mm-hmm. Denver was heading in the right direction. You had. Um, Rich Scangarello, who was running Kyle Shanahan's offense, right? I mean, and this is the offense that every coach is like desperate to install on their team. You know, like the the Titans are running a version of the the Shanahan wide zone offense, and you know the Rams have some of this incorporated. The Packers have this, and you had that going in Denver. He was four and zero down the stretch at the end of the year. Um, your offensive coordinator has won games with Nick Mullins and CJ Beathard and you know all these other guys and so you get rid of him and you bring in Pat Shermer who you know was underwhelming at the end of the Eli Manning and Odell Beckham era when he had much better skill position players um, to coach and so I, I was not thrilled with that decision and I think that to me that speaks volumes about where the Broncos are I think they can be better and I think that there are good, talented players on the team, and I think that Drew Locke is good enough. That's the A portion of it. The B portion of it is, mm-hmm. if you're Elway, do you go nuts and go after Trevor Lawrence after this season now? You know, If the Jets are number one and maybe there's some negotiations there, do you try to get into the play for that? I don't know, but you know, it, I would be comfortable going into year three with Drew Locke as my guy, but just not with the offensive coordinator as the offensive coordinator. That's a smart and nuanced take, Connor. I am a little bit more down on lock than you are, perhaps. You know, You're I saw locked Vic- down. <laughs> locked down. Uh, like most of America, well, or those of us who comply, <laughs> lockdown. Um, 
you know, I saw that Vic Fangio said he was very concerned with the turnovers, which is kind of coach speak, I guess, you know, trying to hold your quarterback accountable. And there's always a lot of reasons that come out of turnovers. He had that thrilling comeback win against the Chargers, you know, showing, you know, the ability to kind of make a late game push despite how things had been going to that point, which I think is an important quality with quarterbacks. But I just don't know how you can come out of this season feeling confident. Uh, I I think this year has posed more questions than it's answered them. And, you know, you make the really smart point about the coordinator change um, and that as a result, you know, perhaps building off last season would be difficult because there was a change. He also had the shoulder injury. So there are a lot of reasons. But um, I don't know. It's hard for me to say at this point that, you know, he's the kind of talent you can definitely build around. Maybe you can win games with him, but – it it's the feeling of at the end of last season where there was all this promise that he Elway had finally answered the quarterback position. I, I don't have that confidence now. No, I think that was absolutely premature. premature. Uh, we, yeah. We and did I, not, we did not agree with that. Right. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, there were so many Broncos fans that just wanted to believe, you know, that right. after so long that it just became, it took on a life of its own after he played well down the stretch. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting discussion, I think, down the road to have on the fact that, like, how many of these Broncos coaches are getting fired because the greatest, one of the greatest quarterbacks in NFL history can't pick a quarterback to run, you know, the team, you know? And I think that that's really interesting, too, um, mm-hmm. if it turns out that that Locke really isn't the guy, but you know, I think, I think the Broncos abandoned ship on an offense that could have been more complimentary. And so at this point we're kind of seeing a more naked version of everything and, and it's, and it's not pleasant, you know, but uh, yeah. yeah. And you know, it does raise an interesting question for teams across the board. Like how, how, if you have a guy like Locke, who's in his second season where quarterbacks are supposed to make a jump from year one to year two, but he didn't get that normal offseason, right? How do you factor that into your long-term quarterback evaluation, saying that he didn't have the chance to make that kind of leap in year two that other quarterbacks with a more normal offseason would have? Um, Is that a factor? Should it be? I don't know. I'd be interested to hear from teams how they view that. Yeah. And, you know, are you concerned about the egg on your face if he recycles somewhere else and turns out to be a really great player, you know, Um, you know, and you discard him early, which I, you know, just in thinking about it now, like how the jets might feel, for example, with Trevor Lawrence or, you know, in any of those other situations. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Before we move on to everyone's favorite topic on the show, we just wanted to say, we appreciate everyone writing in at weeksidepod at gmail.com, but we'd also love for you to leave comments and questions in the reviews on Apple podcasts. It'll help other listeners find the show, but also it may help you get on the show because we hope that you can drop in your Oracle. Um, tell us something you think will happen in the NFL in the next week, in the next month, in the next year. We'll see how it compares with some of Connor's greatest hits this year. So you can drop an Oracle. Or if you're daring, you could even try a Vigo taco recipe. So we'll mm. settle for either or. Oracle, vegan tacos. So yeah, drop it in the comments. We'll keep checking back for... Uh, for you guys who reached out and we'll uh, incorporate some of them on a future show. Absolutely. All right, Connor, but now for your Oracle, what do we have this week? Well, this is a very exciting week. This is 
one of the tastiest schedules on paper uh, that we've had. So we start on uh, Thursday night football with Cardinal Seahawks, which six and three, six and three. Um, you have then throughout the afternoon the, the one o'clock games are, are all wildly forgettable. But then you get Titans Ravens, um, you get. Uh, Packers and Colts, and then you get Chiefs and Raiders on Sunday night football, and then Monday night football is Rams and Buccaneers. So there's a lot of really, really good games this weekend. Yeah. Um, But I'm going to keep focused on Thursday night football, November 19th, um, and I think riding the wave of uh, what's been happening with Arizona. Still believe in Seattle. They're still my playoff Super Bowl pick and Russell Wilson MVP. That doesn't change. But uh, this Thursday, I'm predicting a uh, two-touchdown victory at least um, by the Arizona Cardinals in Seattle. It's going to be a massive uh, statement win uh, for Kyler Murray and uh, Cliff Kingsbury. Wow. I like that, Connor. Sticking with... uh Sticking with some bold predictions for the Oracle, I see. I'm th- you know, why not? You know, but I, I, I think that Arizona is like they're having their moment right now. You know, yeah. and, and they're gonna kind of they're gonna they're gonna have a, a good couple of games uh, here coming up, and, and maybe they'll be able to put some distance between themselves and some of the other teams. But you know, um, yeah, we're spoiled this week. But I think it's gonna start off with a very statement esque uh, victory there, but from Arizona. All right. Love it. That's a good oracle for this week. What do we have right, for, the, uh, for the Rentus consensus, which is the real reason that everybody, that everybody sticks around? I would like to propose a moratorium on MVP predictions until week 12 of the NFL season, every NFL season. And we ourselves have fallen into this trap. I'm sure we've talked on previous episodes about MVP favorites. We've had to make MVP picks before the season. We've had to make mid-season MVP picks uh, as recently as last week. But it's Every year, the MVP race feels completely up in the air until week 17, and then the winner is obvious, and then that's who the winner is. And I just um, always laugh about how much the power rankings change, right? I mean, early this season, it felt like nobody but Russell Wilson could win it. Now he's had a couple bad games, so he recedes from the pack. It's like trying to call Florida at like 8.30 p.m. on election night, Connor. You know, (laughs) counties are still coming in. All precincts haven't reported. It's flipping blue, red blue red we don't know which direction it's going so i would like to say until we get to week 12 at least on the week side podcast connor this much we can control there will be no more conversations about mvp favorites sanity now i like it i uh, i really like that <laughs> i mean week 12 is not that far away but um i just had to say it because it's you know we are all, all are prone to making proclamations too early in any given NFL season, but mm. the MVP race particularly seems to me to just be the one that it, it it always feels it always feels premature, and we're crowning people early in the season, and then it's like, well, what happened to X player from the MVP race? Um, so let's just put a put a lid on it. You know, there are people that blame sports writers in particular for. Uh, a lot of things, but also how uh, elections are covered. Um, when I was, I, I was a, a poli sci minor, and I think my thesis was on something that had to do with this. I, I think, um, you know, basically like our horse race style coverage of, you know, 
um, of of sports and how that impacted the elections and everything like that. And it's true. And then we've almost like then after we ruined politics, we came back and and just doubled down on ourselves. And now it's like you know we got to predict the MVP every single week, and we got to like tell you what's going to happen three weeks down the road, and and we're yelling at you. And you know we we don't all have the luxury of you know. Uh, you know, there are some shows and programs where, you know, every week they just say everybody's good, but then you clip it on Instagram um, and you take it only for the winners <laughs> to make these people look like geniuses. Um, you know, uh, certain like morning football programs that I'm thinking of. And, uh, you know, see, so you have that or you could just, you know, we could just relax and we could just talk about it. But that's why I like us. That's why we're here. We're just I was, you know, we're, we're gonna accountable. Back, yeah, we're going to take we're, we're taking a step back. We're getting out of the. We're getting out of the river, you know, and we're just letting it happen. I mean, it's really a proclamation that amounts to two weeks. Probably should have made it a rentous consensus a few weeks <laughs> earlier, but it just really stood out to me this week, Connor, and I was I was moved to say it now. So, but I'm guessing See two weeks ago week you had 12. a good rentous consensus, so it was good. It was important either way. All right, all right. Thanks for humoring me. But yes, uh, we may have bad takes here on the Weekside Podcast, Connor, but at least we're accountable. So that's right. That's one thing you can say about us. Well, as always, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for the feedback. We love hearing from listeners. Uh, really makes our day to see emails and reviews. So please keep it up. The MMQB Weekside Podcast is me, Jenny Rentis, and Connor Orr. We are produced by Shelby Royston. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial projects and product. Mark Moravik is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, leave a rating and review. As we mentioned earlier in the show, the Oracle or a vegan taco recipe. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. 